ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Science populars have often insisted that human beings are nothing special in the cosmic scheme of things. But what does the scientific evidence actually show? Hello, I'm Eric Anderson, and today I'm joined again by Dr. Michael Denton to talk about his brand new book, The Miracle of Man. Denton is a senior fellow with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture and holds an MD from Bristol University and a PhD in biochemistry from King's College in London. Welcome back, Mike. Great to be back again, Eric. So last time, Mike, we were talking about the fact that humans are land dwelling, something that we normally don't give a second thought to, but you pointed out that this is critical for a number of reasons, including our ability to intake oxygen from the air for high metabolic rates. But even though we have lots of options and capabilities at our disposal, given that we live on land rather than in the water, we do have to have water come to us, so to speak, on the land, right? Yep. Water is the matrix of life. Being terrestrial is only possible because of one of the most remarkable examples of environment fitness in all of nature, the hydrological cycle, which delivers water and the essential minerals of life to the land. Without the continual delivery of water to the land, the great continental land masses would be dehydrated and sterile entirely devoid of terrestrial life, including ourselves. And none of the advances which enabled humankind to set out on the fateful journey of technological and scientific discovery would have been possible. The hydrological cycle is indeed one of the great wonders of nature, but a wonder so familiar that we take it entirely for granted. Few are aware of the several remarkable elements of fitness which enable the life-giving cycle to turn. The most striking of these elements of fitness is that water exists as a solid, liquid, and gas in the ambient temperature range that exists on the surface of the Earth. No substance on the Earth's surface, including the gases in the atmosphere and the various mineral constituents of the rocks, exists in the three forms of matter. And it is this unique property of water which enables the continuous turning of the cycle, the endless movement of water from sea via clouds, via rain and snow, via rivers, back to the sea. But the delivery of water in itself would be insufficient to enable land-based life. Living things need a number of essential elements, as well as water, and complex organisms like ourselves require a food source, which is provided by plants, which in turn need water-retaining soils to grow and flourish. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I think that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing, and I think the word amazing is very appropriate. As the water circulates via the cycle, it inevitably generates all these additional basic necessities of terrestrial life, providing the essential minerals of life as well as the vital water-retaining soils which promote the growth of plants and trees. And this is only possible because of another suite of unique properties of water, which are uniquely fit for weathering and eroding the rocks. Water is excellent as a solvent, it's high mobility, it's high surface tension, it's expansion on freezing, etc., which working together gift the terrestrial realm with the necessary minerals of life and the life-giving water-retaining soils as the cycle inevitably turns. So water, through its own unique properties, and this is genuinely amazing, delivers itself to the land and in doing so provides both the essential elements of life, which it leaches from the rocks, and via the same erosional process generates the water-retaining soils, which are so essential for the growth of plants. Simply amazing, incomparable evidence of design in nature. Yeah, I love it. That's really amazing, the, the hydrologic cycle and how you've laid it out there. As, as you say, we don't give it a second thought because we, 
we see it rain outside and we think, well, no big deal, right? It's the, it's the fact that it's the inevitable effect of moving water from the clouds down to the rivers to the sea that generates all that, all, all those essential necessities for life on the land. Right, right. And what about the next key aspect, which is the atmosphere itself? Well, yes, our terrestrial being depends on a lot more than merely the hydrological cycle. Um, advanced terrestrial beings like ourselves need copious quantities of oxygen. I think we've mentioned this before. Um, they needed to feed our very high metabolic demands. And being terrestrial, we need to extract that oxygen from the air we breathe via our lungs. The existence of oxygen in the atmosphere and our ability to extract it from the air with our lungs is only possible because of yet another ensemble of prior environmental fitness in nature. To begin with, the oxygen we need is generated by the process of photosynthesis. And again, although we all learn about photosynthesis in school, as in the case of the hydrological cycle, few are aware of the ensemble of fitness which enables this vital process. This includes the light of the sun having just the right energy levels for photochemistry and the atmosphere being entirely transparent to visual light so that the vital light energy can reach the ground to work its magic in the photosynthetic apparatus of green plants. Yeah, that's wonderful. And then talk to us a little bit about, if you can, Mike, oxygen's reactivity. I know that the atmospheric amount you know, has to be a certain amount for safety, but also for metabolic activity. Well, first recall that oxygen is, is a very reactive gas. When it reacts with other atoms or molecules, it releases copious quantities of energy, far more than in most other chemical reactions. And of course, that is why complex organisms like ourselves need lots of metabolic energy to make proteins, replicate our DNA, to use muscles to move, and brains to think. All aerobic and utilize the energy of oxidations. The vast amounts of energy released when oxygen releases and uh, reacts with hydrogen and, and carbon atoms and biological substances is witnessed, as we, are, we all know, in bushfires, where on hot days, one spark may initiate an unstoppable conflagration. Mm -hmm. so, so, so how do we live in an atmosphere highly enriched in this highly re reactive substance? How do we avoid spontaneous combustion? a puzzle that intrigued the novelist Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. We avoid spontaneous combustion because of two vital elements of fitness. The first is that at ambient temperatures, oxygen exhibits a curious reluctance to react. And this is because of a unique energy barrier which has to be overcome before oxygen is ready to react. It is this energy barrier which allows us to live with such vast amounts of oxygen in the atmosphere. Only when oxygen is activated by heat or in the body by transition metals can its vast energies be utilized. Mm. The second is the unique diluent or fire-quenching properties of the, of the nitrogen in the atmosphere, which has the effect of slowing the spread of fire. The importance of the diluent is that once a fire has started, heat activates the oxygen, overcoming the energy barrier, and unless the fire was quenched, at least to some degree, it would spread uncontrollably. It's these two elements of fitness that prevent spontaneous combustion and by dampening the rate of fire spread, render it safe and controllable. Without them, there would be one, no advanced terrestrial aerobic life, and two, no possibility of exploiting fire for the development of technology. And then do you find, uh, you know, so, so that's pretty interesting because it seems like we have just enough oxygen to allow for 
reactivity and allow for a lot of a lot of reaction, but at the same time, not enough to have a single match strike, uh, <laughs> you know, burn yeah. the entire planet. Yes, I mean, even even with the attenuation of the reactivity of oxygen, um, if you raise the percentage of oxygen much above twenty one percent, the various restraints don't really work anymore. Yeah, the oxygen atmospheres enriched beyond that the twenty one percent you mentioned earlier um, are very dangerous yeah and we have that horrible horrible incident with the apollo one crew um, with the capsule filled with oxygen and the spark that went off there yeah i think in, in over the last 20 years it's become very apparent for many investigators just how dangerous oxygen actually is yeah so talk to us though about the positive properties of oxygen itself i mean what what properties do you find to be particularly indicative of the prior fitness for organisms such as us well, first of all, a, a very obvious and <laughs> fact is that oxygen is a gas at ambient temperatures. It makes it available for air-breathing, land-based aerobes like ourselves. That's one obvious element of fitness. The other property of oxygen, however, this is that's a very obvious property which is of benefit to land-based life. But another property which is seldom mentioned, which is also vital to our existence, the existence, sorry, of terrestrial air-breathing organisms, it is low solubility in water. This vital property means that most of the oxygen produced by photosynthesis on Earth resides in the atmosphere rather than in the oceans, leading to our current atmosphere greatly enriched in oxygen and enabling its uptake via the lungs in advanced terrestrial organisms like ourselves. And as already mentioned, its reluctance to act at ambient temperatures protects terrestrials against spontaneous combustion. And although this attenuation is, of course, of some utility to aquatic forms, it is obviously of far more critical importance for terrestrial organisms that would be in far greater danger of spontaneous combustion. Yeah. So, okay. So we've got the hydrologic cycle. We've got the atmosphere with its properties. We've got the oxygen from photosynthesis. We've got these properties of oxygen that make it particularly suited. But now we've still got to get oxygen into the trillions of cells that make up our bodies. Tell us a little bit about some of the key considerations of respiration and how the respiratory and circular system work together. Maybe start with respiration if you can. Yeah. First, a word about the adaptive marvel, which is the human lung. Throughout this, um, these podcasts, we've been discussing environmental fitness. But for once, let's consider one of the great adaptive marvels in the body. In the lungs, the oxygen molecules must be taken up by the blood. But to get into the blood from the lungs, they must cross a thin membrane, which separates the blood from the air in the lungs. This is called the alveolar membrane. To facilitate passage from air to blood, this membrane needs to be very thin. How thin? Physiologist Schmidt-Nielsen describes it in his Animal Physiology. In the human lung, much of the alveolar membrane where the gas exchange takes place is no more than 0.2 microns thick. What this means is difficult to imagine. The thickness of a single page in this book is 50 microns. If one page could be sliced into 250 parallel layers, each would be the thickness of the alveolar membrane yet it's strong enough to tolerate being stretched more than 20,000 times a day. Now, in itself, that's pretty amazing. But what yeah. makes it more amazing as a piece of bioengineering is the extraordinary area over which it's spread. In man, it is spread out in the lungs over the surface of 500 million tiny air sacs or alveoli, comprising a total area of about 130 square meters. This is equal to about three quarters 
of a singles tennis court. Hmm. Another remarkable aspect of this engineering wonder, something highlighted by Ewald Weber, a leading researcher in respiratory physiology. As he points out, this huge area of membrane of 130 square meters is compacted into a space of about five liters, the volume of the human lungs, equivalent, as Ewald Weber puts it, to packing a letter into a thimble. Yeah, yeah, so, that's, really, that's really remarkable. Well, the lungs are certainly a, an adaptive wonder. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I think you in the book you had mentioned a couple of additional aspects of environmental fitness that make all this possible as well. Yeah, despite the wonder of the design of the lungs, and this is the sort of the, one of the great messages of the book, breathing would still be impossible without a special ensemble of environmental fitness. And two important elements of this ensemble are the low density and low viscosity of air, which together enables ventilation, that is the breathing in and out of the air in the large proximal passages in or bronchi in the lungs. But while ventilation can move air in the large bronchi because of its low density and viscosity, curiously it can't move air in and out of the narrow terminal bronchioles and alveoli. This can only be done by diffusion. But here again, an element of the ensemble comes to the rescue because the rates of diffusion of gases is very rapid, perfectly sufficient to transport oxygen very rapidly through the terminal bronchi, the tiny narrow terminal bronchi, to the alveolar membrane. And there's more, um, there's more environmental fitness. Uptake of oxygen in the lungs depends on the high partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere, which drives the oxygen molecules across the alveolar membrane. This is about 160 millimeters of mercury at sea level. But it also depends on the relatively low partial pressure of water vapor and other gases in the respiratory tract. So breathing depends on the density and viscosity of air and the high diffusion rates of gases, the high partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere, and the relatively low partial pressure of the other gases in the respiratory tract. All these parameters must be very close to what they are, or air breathing, despite the adaptive wonder of the lungs, that is taking up oxygen from an atmosphere, would be impossible. Wow, that's a pretty impressive list. And I know you, you have dive into more detail uh, in the book, so I certainly encourage people to check that out. But tell us about the complementary system now, the circulatory system, just in, in some detail. Well, again, um, the circulatory system depends on another prior ensemble of fitness, this time in the properties of water. And let's just remember that <laughs> it's water which makes land-based life possible. And now we're going to see that it's water which makes the circulatory system possible. Water, like any liquid, is firstly incompressible, a seldom mentioned element of fitness for a medium of circulation, as compressible substances cannot be easily pumped. Water is of relatively low density and weight, which is commensurate with the power output of biological pumps. But more than anything else, it's an absolutely excellent solvent. It's essentially the supreme solvent, able to dissolve oxygen and many different nutrients and the waste products of metabolism. And finally, it's very low viscosity is essential because viscous materials, of course, self-evidently can't be pumped through tiny capillaries. Only water has this precise set of properties and only water can form the medium of the blood. No other organism in the last 500 million years on Earth, has used any other liquid but water to form the medium of, of the blood. 
Yeah, and before we enter, I know we're getting close on time, but I have to ask you about one of my favorite molecules, which is hemoglobin. What makes hemoglobin special in this whole process? Well, hemoglobin is special in one way because it's the vital carrier of oxygen to the tissues in the body. It carries 60 times more the quantity of oxygen that can be carried in simple solution. At its heart are four ion atoms, which each enter into a loose association with one oxygen molecule. This loose association is critically dependent on the unique chemical properties of the iron atom, and probably no other atom can stand in for iron in this role. Again, although of course hemoglobin is an exquisitely designed adaptive molecule without the prior fitness of the transitional metals for handling oxygen, iron is of course a transition metal, there would be no hemoglobin in all probability, no advanced aerobic organisms like ourselves. Yeah, that's great. Well, this this has been so great, Mike. I really appreciate you taking time with us again. And there's so much more in the book. I encourage uh, listeners to check it out. Uh, we'd love to have you come back again if it's possible, Mike. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, that'll be fine. Yeah. Thank you for joining us at ID the Future. To learn more about the remarkable fitness of nature, order your copy of The Miracle of Man today at outlets like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Join us again soon as we continue to explore the remarkable evidence for design in nature and consider helping us spread this important message by sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.